Again, hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 19, verses 16 through 22. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Well, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. In life, we set a lot of goals. Sometimes they're daily goals. I've got to get this done on my task list today or maybe something for this week. But sometimes there are goals that seem important enough, significant enough, that we have to sort of count the cost of what it's going to take to see that goal through. And we have to say to ourselves, you know, I I really have to buckle down and get this done. And maybe we realize that we are willing to do almost anything that it would take to accomplish that big significant goal for our life. But when we realize that maybe we're only ready to do almost everything that a goal would take, we realize the place where we probably are going to trip up and not actually get to our final goal that we are seeking to accomplish. So for example, if you're looking to lose weight, this is something that I try to do from time to time, should do it more often. Maybe you try to figure out the most intense workout plan that you have. You can go down an endless black hole of YouTube videos, for example, telling you which workouts to do, to what intensity, with what technique, on which days, and you can have this whole plan, and maybe you spend hours in the gym. But if you don't at the same time control what you eat, it doesn't matter how much you work out. You won't be able to work off the calories that you are ingesting, and you will not reach that big goal. Almost willing to do everything it takes is not enough. The same thing is true financially. Maybe you have a big savings goal, maybe retirement or maybe something that you're trying to save up to buy. Again, you can work hard and make more and more and more and more money, but if you do not control your spending, you won't get what you need. Even Jeff Bezos doesn't have enough money to buy everything or to to keep up if he spends more than he earns. It's all a matter of trying to balance those two things against each other. If you're only willing to do almost everything it takes, it's just not enough in many goals. Well, we have here a man who seems to be understanding that principle. But Jesus is going to do two things in this passage that are so instructive. The first thing he's going to show him is that this man is not really willing to do everything it takes. But much more than that, Jesus is going to show this man, and and really us as we read this passage, this passage really brings us into this story in a special, unique kind of a way. Jesus is teaching us that gaining entrance into the kingdom of heaven, that eternal life, that salvation through Jesus Christ is not at all like those other things. It's not about doing the one big thing that you need to do. It is something entirely different. So as we think about what Jesus is saying here, what we're going to see is that it starts with the heart. 
our big idea then is this. Lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. Lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. As Jesus uh, told us that same verse earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, he then reminds us that for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It starts with the heart. Where is your treasure? Lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. So three parts to our sermon today. First of all, the inadequacy of our good deeds, inadequate deeds. Second, the internal demands of the law, internal demands. And third, the irrationality of our desires, irrational desires. So we'll start at the beginning of this passage in verse 16, the inadequacy of our deeds or inadequate deeds. And we read, and behold. Now this word behold means something like look, it it gets your attention. And it suggests that uh, what is happening here follows very soon after what we had read in the previous passage, where the little children came to Jesus, were brought to Jesus, and Jesus blessed them. And so the idea you get is that you're watching this scene unfold and, whoa, look at that, behold, there comes a man onto the scene. And when we read here that a man came, the word is actually not man. It's the most generic word you could use. It's the word one, just like one, two, three, four, five. One came up to him. Now we know that it's masculine. Greek can sort of reveal that, that it's masculine. So it is a man, but we have absolutely no details about this man. We don't know anything about him. Later, we're going to learn that he's young and that he has many possessions, but we don't know that just yet. We know that this is just one. One comes up to him. What's interesting about this, and I mentioned earlier, this this passage really pulls us into this, is that knowing nothing about this one, we're sort of experiencing this story in the same way that the original crowd would have experienced it. We have no idea what's going on in this guy's life. We have no idea about what's lurking in his heart. And so Jesus, though, who does, is going to systematically, slowly, carefully expose this. And as he does this, he's also going to do the same thing to our hearts. So what happens in this section, in this verse, is that this man who comes up to Jesus says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, here's a question like what I posed in the beginning of the sermon. If there's almost, if you're ready to do almost anything it takes, well, that, you just need to figure out what that almost is. That may be tripping you up. If you can just get rid of that, maybe then you can have the big thing that you're seeking here. And that's the thinking that he has here. But there are two errors in here that Jesus needs to confront. The first error is the error of works righteousness, that something may be done, that there is some good deed. Well, maybe I'm just not willing to do almost everything. And so I need to figure out the thing that I'm holding back, and if I could just do that, well, then maybe I would have eternal life. Jesus can tell me that. And Jesus says, no, it isn't like that at all. You are so far behind the eight ball. You are so far guilty in your sin that there's no good deed you could do to make up for it. That's the first error that Jesus is going to confront in this section. But the second error that Jesus is going to confront in the next section is the assumption that we have the ability to do something about it. That if there were a good deed, that we actually would want to do it and could do it. That our desires and our willpower would actually be sufficient to accomplish this good deed if we just knew what it was. We'll see Jesus' response to that in the next section. Now, the reason that we have to understand and be aware of these errors right from the beginning is that if we do not see these errors that Jesus is confronting and exposing, we won't understand his response. Jesus is not giving a straightforward answer to a straightforward question. That's a huge principle to understand in this passage. 
what Jesus is doing is pastoral. It is so sensitive to this man that we know nothing about, but that Jesus does, and then is exposing one piece at a time what's happening in his heart. So not a straightforward answer to a straightforward question. Jesus is pastorally leading this man to recognize exactly what he needs. And it's not to do some great deed. It's something much more fundamental. You see, what this man doesn't recognize is that he is wanting to do some good deed, again, this first error, that he believes that something can be done, but when the reality is that nothing, that can, nothing can be done to save himself. He thinks that some good deed, some big thing would put him over the top in God's righteous standing, but what he fails to understand this is that he is already a guilty sinner. He's already condemned by the law of God that Eric talked about a little bit earlier. There's a weight that falls over him that, that he's just sort of blithely ignorant to. And so he fails to see that no matter how high he might reach on the standard, on the pole of the measuring stick of God's righteousness, it doesn't come anywhere near to the infinite standards of what God demands for us. Again, we keep going back to Matthew 5, 48. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. And to fall short of it is to be utterly condemned, and all of us already have. We did in our first father, Adam, and we've been continuing in his steps ever since. And I think what we are seeing here in this man is that it's a very difficult thing to see our own sin. Just like I think it's hard for my own children to recognize when their hands are dirty. When they've been playing outside in the yard, um, we tell them to come back in and wash their hands. Now, sometimes they know. Maybe they've been playing directly in the mud. What a wonderful thing as a parent to see that when they come in with faces beaming, with covered with mud. Sometimes they know this. My three-year-old knows um, very few words, but one of the words he knows really well is mess. He says that for a lot of things. If there's a lot of things on the floor, mess. If he's got things all over his hands, mess. He likes to say that word. Sometimes he knows when it is dirty. But sometimes he looks in and he shows you his hands and there's nothing on there. You can't see anything. But see, we know what he doesn't know. We know that there's a lot of bacteria in the soil. We know that our dogs use that backyard as a toilet. They may not be able to see these germs, but if they could look at their hands under a microscope, they would recognize these are not clean hands. There's a mess there that maybe is invisible to my eyes, maybe invisible to your eyes, but is there and can make you sick. God sees far more than a microscope can with our hands. The problem with works righteousness is that it's a form of legalism. It is trying to be saved by keeping the law. There's a legal standard. If I can meet it, then I will be saved. So what's the standard, Jesus? Tell me the one good thing that I need to do, and I will do it. But the blind spot of legalism is a failure to recognize how guilty we already are because we like to think of ourselves as pretty good people. I look at my hands. I see no clear mess there. I'm a pretty good person, I think. I haven't broken a lot of these commands in the ways that some people have in comparison with others. My sin is not as visible as theirs is, at least in my own eyes. And remember Jesus warned us about the log in our own eyes before trying to take the speck out of someone else's eyes. So even that is a flawed way of measuring that. But again, it's not the standard of me versus you. It's all of us compared to God, the only one who is good. Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. Jesus is pointing this man to the standard of his heavenly Father, and against the righteousness of Almighty God, no one comes close. The psalmist gets to this, this idea in Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4. Who shall ascend 
the hill of the Lord. In other words, who qualifies to come into God's presence? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The first problem that Jesus is confronting is that in the eyes of the Lord there is no one who is good, no, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the righteousness of God. No one has clean hands. But in the next section, Jesus is going to take this a step further to say no one also has a pure heart. What does it take? Clean hands and a pure heart. And it's to the heart of this man that Jesus goes next. In the second section, the internal demands of the law. This is getting at this error of whether if we knew what was required of us, whether we would be able to keep it. Maybe let's just theoretically imagine there is a good deed that if you did it, you'd be saved. That's not true. But even if it were true, the next problem you would face is that you would not be able to do it. You would not desire to do it. You would not have the strength of willpower to do it. You would not have the intellect, show ability to understand the goodness of this thing. All of those things would conspire in your soul to keep you from doing that one good thing required of you. And so in the second response, still in verse 17, Jesus, after saying there is only one who is good, he goes on to say, if you would enter eternal life, or if you would enter life, excuse me, keep the commandments. Now, Jesus starts with talking about the personal goodness of God. There's only one who is good, but then he works to the revealed goodness of God in the law. You know that God is good personally. The way you see this revealed is in the law of the Lord, in this commandments of God. Now, again, when we understand what Jesus is saying, he is not giving a straightforward answer to a straightforward question. He is doing something to expose what is going on in the heart of this man, and this is clear by what this man asks him. In verse 18, he asks him, the, the, the man asks him, which ones? Now, this is a key indication that we are dealing with a legalist. We've talked a lot about legalism, going all the way back to Matthew 5, verses 19 through 20, that the heart of legalism begins with a sense of relaxed righteousness. It's the understanding that, well, I, I probably can't reach the infinitely high standards of God in heaven, but, you know, I actually think the bar is really more like here, and I think I can make it. You might not be able to, but when I define my sin according to all of these loopholes that I'm looking for, that I've gotten myself out of guilt, well, I actually can step over that bar. Good luck to you, though. Relaxed righteousness, Jesus says, but whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And then unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Legalism begins with a sense of relaxed righteousness. That there is a minimum standard that if I can just keep it, I will be fine. And that's what this man is asking. What's the bare minimum? Which commandments must I keep? Now, this man doesn't yet see his own legalism, but Jesus is going to press in further to get him to see it. And so in verse 18, in the second part, Jesus responds to him in the, in the verse 19. We read in verse 18b, and Jesus said, well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we should notice here what Jesus says, but also, more importantly, what he does not say. Jesus lists here in order, shall not murder, that's the sixth commandment. You shall not commit adultery, that's the seventh commandment. 
You shall not steal. That's the eighth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. That's the ninth commandment. Then he skips back down to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. And then he gives the summary for what's called the second table of law. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus 19, verse 18. So he gives part of the second table of the law, commandments 5 through 9, but he doesn't give any of the first table of the law. Those commandments dealing with God, you shall have no gods before me, you shall not make for yourself any graven image, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. All of these commandments that Jesus says are of first importance. The first commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And then the second one, which is still important, but of a lesser tier, you shall then love your neighbor as yourself. So he doesn't mention anything in the first tier. And he also leaves out the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. You shall not desire what belongs to your neighbor or really desire any kind of sin whatsoever. Uh, we have here something like what happens in the Sherlock Holmes story, The Adventure of Silver Blaze. This is a dog that does not bark. Sherlock Holmes in a mystery is pointing to what is really important in solving the case that no one else sees. And he says, the crucial fact of what happened last night is what the dog did. And the other man says, the dog didn't do anything. And Sherlock Holmes says, that's the crucial issue. If you own a dog like I do, you know that dogs are constantly ready to throw down. Anytime they see the smallest poodle trotting out outside of our window, they are instantly ready and prepared to go to war. Uh, they are barking, it is loud, you cannot stop them. If a dog doesn't bark, that means that whoever met this dog at the door before this crime happened knew the dog, and that narrows the possible suspects down significantly. When Jesus doesn't mention certain commandments, ironically, he is actually putting our focus and attention on those commandments. What does Jesus show us then in these commandments that he does mention? We'll start there. Well, one commentator, R.T. France, says that really what you have here are the commandments that are easiest to boil down to external actions. And particularly the kinds of external actions that we immediately we think about when we compare the mess on our own hands to the mess on our neighbor's hands. I've never murdered anybody. I'm not an adulterer. I haven't stolen. I haven't lied or borne false witness, specifically in the court of law. All of these are things that might externally consider someone to be a good person. But the problem is that God's law goes much deeper than this. Jesus talks so much about this in the Sermon on the Mount, especially in Matthew chapter 5. And our larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 99, uh, section 2, it points out the fact that God's law is spiritual in such a way that it reaches our understanding, our willpower, our affections, what we desire, and all other powers of the soul, as well as words, works, and gestures. It's not just the external stuff. It's the internal stuff that God is interested in. And so when Jesus doesn't ask about covetousness, we should also remember that not only are these the spiritual matters of the first table of the law, but in the tenth commandment, both in Ephesians 5, verse 5 and Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul says that covetousness itself is idolatry. Even if you think you keep the second table of the law, honor your father and mother, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. If you covet, if you desire what does not belong to you, it brings you all the way back around to the beginning. In terms of idolatry, it relates to the way in which you love God. It's really interesting why does Jesus then leave off covetousness and force us to see covetousness by leaving it out, the dog that doesn't bark? 
That's because covetousness is the underlying foundation of all other sin. Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 7. He says that he wouldn't have known what the law required until the law stated it. You shall not covet. Paul doesn't mention all the other commandments there. He points to the 10th commandment. And he says, yes, I I know I shouldn't, just light of nature, just being a human being, I know I shouldn't murder, I know I shouldn't commit adultery, but you're saying my desires are regulated by this as well? And Paul said when he heard that law, it exposed all kinds of sinful desires in his heart, stirred them all up, made them rage up against that law itself. Now what is happening here is that we are seeing that God not only requires clean hands, but a pure heart. And the question is, who can meet such a standard? Now, what's telling is the young man is not clued into this yet. In verse 20, the young man says that he thinks he does have clean hands. So in verse 20, the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? He thinks he has clean hands. He he doesn't, but he thinks that. But still somewhere there's this nagging sense of doubt. He knows he's still lacking something. Do you have this nagging sense of doubt this morning? Let me cut right through this man that we can talk about in the abstract and cut right to your heart. Do you feel this sense this morning? Do you look at your hands and the hands of your neighbor and you say, well, I, I think mine are pretty co- clean comparatively. Do you recognize that there's still something that is between you and God? Jesus is demanding that we put our attention on this. Again, this passage draws us to think about what this conversation would have been like in the first hand, and to just hear such a nondescript one makes us think, what if that one had been me? What do you lack then? Well, Jesus goes on to address this in the third and final section to say that if it's about clean hands and it's about a a pure heart, then we need a whole life transformation, a wholehearted transformation starting there and working its way out. But this is where the trick is, and this is the third section, the irrationality of our desires, because it gets to the question of whether we even want this at all. In verse 21, Jesus responding to this young man says, if you would be perfect. This idea of perfect is wholehearted, whole, whole self, not lacking anything that is required. If you would be perfect, and then he puts this man's covetousness in the crosshairs. He says, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. One commentator, R.C.H. Lenski, writes, this answer is surprising, and this surprise has endured these last 2,000 years. (laughs) We're still surprised that Jesus would say this. How do we interpret this? This is hard to interpret, but again, we have to remember this is not a straightforward answer to a straightforward question. Jesus is confronting and exposing the idols in this man's heart, the covetousness, which is idolatry, of this man's heart. And so as we think about how to interpret this, I want to give us four principles that help to sort of situate this difficult teaching in the wider passage of of Scripture, in the wider teaching of Scripture. The first thing that's very clear, especially that dog that doesn't bark issue, the commandment that is not named is that Jesus is exposing our 10th commandment violations, the way that covetousness has so much sway in all of our hearts. Jesus is putting his covet, our covetousness in his crosshairs 
teaching us that desire for what is not ours, the desire for sin, is already sin. It is idolatry of the heart. And so Jesus wants us to see this and to reckon with this. The second principle is this, that Jesus is not so much, and this is to help us to interpret what Jesus says, he is not so much laying down a rule for his disciples to follow absolutely, but he is touching on a pattern of generosity that we are all required to keep. Uh, one of the key principles of interpreting the Bible is that Scripture must interpret Scripture. And so whenever we have an unclear passage, we need to compare this to clearer passages. Again, there's a lot going on with the fact that Jesus is not giving a straightforward answer to a straightforward question. So it helps us then to have clear teaching elsewhere. In 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, it's one of the clearest passages on this, where Paul writes this, As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty, not to be prideful, boasting, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. We are not all called to sell everything we possess and give to the poor, but we are all called to use the resources we have to be ready to share with those in need. Well, we're going to need more clarity on this, because the third principle, if that was sort of a, oh, thank goodness, uh, not, not so fast, my friends. Um, although this is not an absolute rule for all disciples, the third principle tells us that we're not let off the hook that easily. Uh, one man, Craig Blomberg, um, in his commentary, he's written a lot on generosity and wealth, and he says that this really calls us for some soul-searching, and he included a couple of passages that I just want to include. I found it in his commentary. They're from other places, but they're really hard, so just, just, just brace yourself. Uh, Hermann Ritterboss writes this, The man, of course, did not think that his riches were worth, worth more than eternal life, but he must have told himself that he did not really have to give up his wealth to gain it. Does that touch at your heart at all? Well, how about this one? Robert Guidry writes this, that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possession, gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. Whew. So what we are told here is that, again, this may not be calling us to this, but we cannot leave it at that. Legalism is trying to look for a loophole to sort of stretch it apart with this re relaxed standard of righteousness which says, well, I don't have to do that. It doesn't really require this of me. It doesn't say that I have to do this, just this one man has to do it, whoever this is. And therefore, this has no bearing on me and I am just fine. But if it's not an absolute rule and if it's not a commandment with no force whatsoever, the fourth principle that I want to give is we need to avoid this false choice between those two extremes. And again, I think Craig Blomberg is helpful on this. He writes a lot about wealth and possessions, and he writes that everything we possess is something that we do not own, but is something we are stewards of by God's grace and with gratitude toward Him. So that we actually do need to give up all of our possessions to the Lord, not by necessarily bringing it to a sale and selling it and giving away the proceeds there to give then to the poor who now would also include us since we are in that position. 
rather a recognition that we must divest ourselves of the sense that we actually own these things. We are only stewards of these things, and everything belongs to God. Now, how do we reflect this? Well, part of this is in the biblical pattern of tithing, of giving 10%. Throughout the scriptures, we see this pattern again and again and again, that at a minimum, we should be giving 10% of our income to the purposes and works of the Lord. This is why we have an offering every week. It is a, it is a, a we, we, we don't take the offering. It's back there to give, and we talk about it and pray for it, um, because this is a biblical pattern to give of our tithes and offering. It's an act of worship. But more, when we read the whole Bible, we see both in the Old Testament and the New Testament that God's people at their best are called to go above and beyond this in generosity. Now, don't look at it for a legalistic percentage. Okay, just tell me the bottom line. What do I need to write the check for? We are called, rather, to recognize that we are to be generous people. But even beyond that, of whatever is left in our possession, to recognize that all of it is a stewardship of taking care of the Lord's possessions for His purposes and for His glory. And what's so irrational about this passage is in verse 22, that when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Couldn't do it. Wasn't willing to do it. Even if there would have been one good thing that he could have done to be saved, at the end of the day, he, like us, was not willing to do it. How do we apply this? Now, don't worry um, if you've had a lot of fun dealing with uh, riches and wealth and possessions. Um, don't worry. We're not done. We're going to deal with this more next week, Lord willing, as we continue this passage. So plenty more to say that cuts at our great idolatries of our riches. I think this passage is really dealing with the question of salvation, of eternal life. And how do we get that? What good deed must we do to be saved? You know, as a pastor, I got the pleasure and privilege of talking with a couple of people this week who shared with me the story of their conversion. And there was a theme. Both of them looked very different in the ways they told their stories, but both told me a story where they were originally living a life of deep rebellion against the Lord in all kinds of ways. But in both cases, something happened and they sort of adjusted their lives. They managed their behavior a little bit better. But what they said was that their sins shifted to things that were not necessarily illegal anymore but they were still filled with all kinds of idolatries and covetousness and all kinds of various sins that still cut against God's law until the Lord used his word to cut directly through the facade of their good works where they were convicted to their hearts to see their sin, to see that they deserved God's wrath and condemnation. And that was when they looked to Jesus for faith, looked to Jesus for salvation by faith. And I want to ask you a question. Have you recognized the mess that is on your hands and in your heart this morning? Have you recognized in desperation that there is nothing you can do to save yourself? Are you crying out with the Lord, what must I do to be saved? Or maybe, maybe that's actually a tricky question for you. Because maybe your question is not, what must I do to be saved? Maybe you are not this smug, self-righteous man who thinks that he's got it all together and just needs that one thing to get him over the threshold. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, how could I possibly be saved? How could God look upon someone like me who has totally made a mess of their lives? Maybe you don't think you are a pretty good person. Maybe you believe the exact opposite. How could you be saved? Well, whether you think you're a pretty good person or whether you know you are not, 
The answer to that question comes a little bit later in, this pa- in the next passage in verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You cannot save yourself. You cannot cleanse your hands. You cannot purify your heart. But the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God's Son did the thing that you couldn't do. God's Son took upon a human nature like yours in every respect, yet without sin. That means both that he lived a totally perfect life where his hands had no mess. They were not filthy. He sinned in no way, either great or small. But not only that, but even his heart was pure. There wasn't the least hint of sin bubbling up and certainly not spilling out into his actions. But what Jesus did, he did for a special purpose. He did this to fulfill all that God required of you. Maybe some of you have had to take an entrance exam to get into school or to get into a job. Imagine this is Jesus taking the entrance exam for you to get into heaven, and he sits in in your place and he takes it. And it's not just a multiple choice fill in the bubbles where maybe your hands get a little sore. Jesus Christ went to the cross where he bore up under the wrath of Almighty God for your sins, where he was crucified, pouring out his blood with his body broken for you to be saved. He gave everything he had so that the sinners, whether we think that we are good or not, no matter what idolatries are in our hearts, that we could be cleansed inside and out. Jesus did this for you. He signed himself onto a crushing loan of debt that you have because of your sin. And though you could never pay it, he paid it all. And more than that, he left it all behind. He conquered it. He left it in the grave forever when he got up from the grave, resurrected to new life after being dead for three days, and walked out of the grave after having broken the power of sin, death, and the devil. He possesses this this power of salvation that you need. What must good thing must be done? Not what you can do, but must be done. Exactly what Jesus did for you. Do you want this salvation? Do you need this salvation? The gospel of Jesus announces something so scandalous that though there is nothing you could have done, there is nothing that you have done that is too great to overmatch the abundance of his grace and mercy through the cross. Sinners, filthy in hands and in heart, may be forgiven and cleansed because of Jesus Christ. Though your sins are as scarlet, Jesus can make you white as snow. And he doesn't do this by asking you to do some good deed for him. That is entirely off the table. Because there is no one good but God alone, and there is no good standard but God's infinitely righteous law. Instead, he gives this salvation to sinners by faith in Jesus Christ. By believing and casting yourself upon him and trusting in him as though you have no other hope because you don't. In desperation, believing and trusting that what Jesus has done is for you and for your sins. Have you trusted in Christ? Is he your hope? Is he your joy? Is he the life that you are seeking? Are you recognized the good deed that you needed to do he did for you? This morning, come to Jesus and be saved. Come, follow him, and lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make this gospel so real to us, so beautiful, so pure to us. That, Father, though we are defiled, 
inwardly and outwardly, you would call us to repentance. Father, I pray that if anyone here is still in need of this gospel, still not knowing what Jesus Christ has done, I pray that you by your Holy Spirit would give eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand all that is contained in this gospel of your son Jesus Christ, that by your Holy Spirit, Christ would be glorified and that you would be glorified in your son. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.